Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 30. I love this time of the year. Do you guys enjoy this time of the year? It's a great time of the year, nice and cool. My wife and I were sitting on the back porch, hanging out, drinking coffee, enjoying the weather yesterday. It was cool. So nice. I love Thanksgiving. I love the food and the family and all that goes with that. We've been working our way through the book of Philippians, kicked it off a couple weeks ago. This is Joy to the World teaching series. And as I stated this morning, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30, Joy in Suffering. Jesus is coming to this earth was good news of great joy. It tells us that in Luke, Luke 2, Luke chapter 2, the whole Christmas story. Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, thus uh, titled the letter, the small letter called Philippians, teaches us how we can have this good news of great joy in every context of life, regardless of the people, things, and circumstances. The key verse for this small letter is, anybody remember? Philippians 4, 4, it goes like this. See if you can recite it with me. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. What is he saying in that? He's saying find your deepest, greatest love, trust, faith, hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. And then he says, hey, just to make sure you don't miss this, and I'm going to say it again, just to remind you, always, again, I say rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Find your deepest delight, your deepest pleasure. Make Christ your greatest treasure, is what he's saying. And in fact, if you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, as you come to know him, you will find him indeed to be the greatest treasure of your life, to know him and to walk with him and to experience him. There's nothing like it, absolutely. And so he's just reminding us, and, and we can find that to be true no matter the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Now, as we talk about suffering, joy and suffering, we need to know a little bit about suffering. I'm not going to get into this uh, part of it or this aspect of the idea of suffering. Why? But suffering is the result of sin. Genesis 3 makes that very clear. I know and I understand there are certainly those out there that would uh, use suffering as an argument against the existence of God, but I would disagree with that. I actually believe that suffering actually argues for the existence of God because if you do not believe in a God, then really... If we came from nothing and we're going to nothing, then everything in between that is a big nothing. And so who's to say it's actually suffering? We don't know that. The reason why I actually believe that Christians should be in greater turmoil over the suffering because we do believe in absolute moral objective values. And so we struggle with that, and that's the reason why I believe that really it argues for the existence of God because of the fact that we're, we struggle through suffering it identifies the fact that, that we somehow believe that there is some sort of objective, moral, absolute value, and this bothers us when we see people suffering, and therefore it, it shows us that we were created in the image of a loving, merciful, gracious God. And so we're not going to get into that, but I just want to talk about that just for a moment because we need to look back to Genesis 3, and you can see how this this whole thing began to unravel in Genesis chapter 3. So suffering is a result of sin. To live is to suffer spiritually, psychologically, relationally, and physically. When you study Genesis chapter 3, you see the unraveling take place in these concentric circles. It starts with a spiritual alienation. We rejected God and it created this spiritual alienation which immediately creates a psychological alienation, this turmoil within us. And then that is translated into a social alienation. And then we've got the physical problems of this world. The question isn't, will I suffer? But how will I suffer? And when I suffer, will it be purposeful or purposeless? Our greatest problem is not the suffering. Suffering is an inevitable part of living in a fallen world. But how will we suffer? How will we suffer? And our greatest problem is not our suffering, but it's really, it's our response 
to the suffering that is taking place in our lives. I love what Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot, I've got a quote there on your notes. Uh, her husband, Jim, along with four others, was murdered by the primitive natives in the jungles of Ecuador as a missionary in the late 50s. This is what she says about suffering. Christ suffered not that we might not suffer, but so that in our suffering we might become like him. We might become like him. Now, we're reading a letter from a guy who is certainly no stranger to suffering. And I put this on your notes. You can study this further on your own. If you would read through that, you'd see that Paul experienced a phenomenal amount of suffering. And he's even currently suffering as he's pinning this letter to the church in Philippi that is packed full of joy in the midst of his suffering. And so that's what we're going to talk about here today, joy in suffering. How can we have that? Joy in suffering happens when, and we're going to talk about five things from this text. Before we do that, what I'd like to do is I want us to bow our heads. We're going to pray, and I want to pray through the definition. This has been our working definition for this idea of joy. And if you haven't been here, you can just kind of listen to this prayer. But this is our prayer here this morning as we pray to ask God to help us to experience joy, no matter what your circumstance is this morning that you can experience this joy. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment just before we read our text. Let's pray. God, we are delighted to be here today. What a wonderful time of the year here in, in Phoenix. Great weather. And we get to hang out with our friends. And this week we get to feast and celebrate and thank and give thanksgiving to you for the many blessings in our lives. And God, we pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word, that we would understand more clearly this this joy that you give to us in the midst of whatever's happening in our life, and specifically in the midst of suffering. And I know that there are a number of folks here today that are going through suffering, a number of families that are going through suffering. And God, so show us this joy, this buoyancy. Though life can push us down, it can't keep us down because there's this buoyancy in our life that comes from this joy that's, that's based, it's based on, the, on the pleasures we find and the eternal privileges we have in you. God, help us not to fall prey to the counterfeit of that, of of coming to you and, and worshiping what you give to us as opposed to truly worshiping you, substituting the gifts from the gift giver you, Lord. We've come not to get from you so much as to be with you this morning. God, we also know that this joy... It's not a denial of reality, but it's, but it's an encounter with you in the midst of our reality. And we know that the opposite of this joy would be, would be despair and hopelessness, not sorrow. You told us in this world we would face sorrowful times and things that would happen to us. But in the midst of that, we would have this deep, durable delight in the beauty and the splendor of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's done for us in our lives that would ruin us for anything else. God, may that be true in our lives this morning as we study Your Holy Word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Take a look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. I'm going to read completely through the text, and then we'll go through and dissect it. We'll unpack it, starting at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Let's read this next verse together and aloud. You guys ready? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Great verse. 
If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Joy and suffering happens when I, here's your first fill in the blank, when I have a godly perspective. What is a godly perspective? God is loving, wise, and in control of my life. That's a godly perspective. Now, he doesn't say that specifically here, but we know that from the fuller context of Scripture, that God is loving, He's wise. He knows every detail of my life. He knows the best path for me, and he's in control. He can pull that off. Now, as you study through this, as we looked at the very first, uh, if you have your Bible still open, notice what Paul says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Certainly they were upset over the fact that Paul, where's Paul? He's in prison. He's actually chained to a praetorian guard. He's under house arrest. 24-7, this guard is with him. He can't do what he longs to do, and that's to proclaim the gospel, start churches. And so, but he tells them, hey, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And then he talks about that in the first couple verses here, verse 13. He says, wow, the message of the gospel is going throughout the imperial guard. And then, in fact, his persecution is is creating greater confidence within others to, to boldly Speak the word of God without fear. And so Paul's mission, when you study Paul's mission, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Paul's mission was to reach the Gentile world. That was his heart cry. He wanted to reach the, gospel, uh, the Gentile wor- world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even more specifically, we know, according to the book of Romans, his letter to the, to the church in Rome, he wanted to reach Rome, the center of the world, because he thought, if I can reach If I can reach Rome, the center of the world, then the rest of the world will be impacted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he also had a heart to infiltrate its power structure. So I can almost get this idea that Paul's praying, God, give me me your grace so I can reach the world, and specifically Rome, and infiltrate the power structure with the message of the gospel. And I'm sure that he worked his plan, and he prayed his plan, and he worked his plan... And God answers by doing what? I love this. This is awesome what God does. God answers and says to Paul, Paul, how about I chain them to you? Yes, the Praetorian guards chained to Paul. When you study this idea of the Praetorian guards, they were the most strategic group in the Roman Empire, personally chosen by Caesar, the highest trained and highest paid. When they retired after 12 years, they became leaders in Roman government. I mean, it couldn't have been a more strategic move on God's part. But of course, the church in Philippi is looking at this from the outside in saying, oh, Paul, we feel so bad for you. This looks terrible. We're concerned about your well-being, but also your ministry. And he says, hey, wait a minute. You're not seeing it clearly. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's amazing. I mean, when you, when you read through this and you look at this. So, so God, God puts Paul in Rome. Nero pays the bill. I like that. Chains a future leader of Rome to Paul every four hours. Paul has a captive audience. I love it. This is so cool. I mean, who's really chained to who here? Okay, you get it? Because Paul can't 
keep his mouth shut about the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking, who are you chained to? Is it maybe a job? Is it maybe a boss? Is it maybe a particular situation? Who's really chained to who? You might be looking at your circumstance saying, wow, this looks so bad, this looks so negative. And God's saying, hey, this is all part of my plan for you. I'm working strategically in the midst of this. And and you can't help but think that Paul just boldly proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is really interesting. If you have your Bible still open, turn to the last chapter of, of Philippians real quick and look at verse 22. Listen to what he says as he wraps this up. And this is what's happening because of Paul's witness in this particular situation. Verse 22, and as he's ending the book, he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. What? you got to be kidding. Yeah, people in Caesar's household were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because of what God was doing as he orchestrated this plan. It's amazing. Here's some things that I think we can learn from this. A number of things. A couple points here. Just because you can't see a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. In fact, I believe there's a million reasons. Because God is, God is loving, He's wise, and He's in control. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in relationship to the current situation of your life, the circumstances, the people, the things that are happening to you right now? Or what have happened to you? Or where you're going? Why was Paul able to have the joy that he had in the midst of being chained to a praetorian guard? Because he knew God was loving, wise, and in control. Those are the three attributes that we need to get down deep into our heart. We need to live in the reality of that. That's how we're going to begin to experience joy in the midst of suffering is because we've got to believe Because it's true, God is loving, wise, and in control of our lives. Here's another point, too, is that most of what God is up to can't be seen on this side of eternity. Most of what God is up to in your life can't be seen on this side of eternity. I gave you a couple different verses here, and you'll notice I give you a lot of different cross-references. You can walk those out and study those further with your growing notes this next week. But 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that's the love chapter. And this is what... uh, the writer there, Paul, is saying, he's saying, it's almost as if we live in this world and we can see through a glass darkly or dimly. And, and really, you've got to understand the kind of mirrors that they had in those days. Unlike what we have, you turn on the lights, you see the mirror, you can see your face pretty clearly. Maybe too clearly, huh? For, for my liking, at least, the older I get. But, but what's interesting with the kind of mirrors that they had was that it was polished brass, so you could only make the outline. You couldn't make out the details. And so Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, there's just a whole lot of things we don't see. There's a lot of details about our lives that we don't understand. It also tells us in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, now think about this. The writer here, the prophet is saying, as high as the heavens are above the earth. How high is that? That's incalculable, isn't it? Would you agree with that? So he's saying, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts and my ways above earth and higher than your thoughts and your ways. I am doing things in your life that you have no clue about, but you can trust me because I'm loving, I'm wise, and I'm in control. Think about that just for a minute. Can you see the difference that that would make in your life as it relates to the current situation or circumstances of your life? Some of you, I know you're going through really extremely terrible times, probably the worst times you've ever gone through in your life. And yet I'm here to tell you this morning, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the authority of His holy word, that God is loving, wise, and in control of your life. Yeah, but Pastor Ray, I had plans. I worked those plans. I prayed those plans. I'm sure Paul did too. But I'm telling you, God's plan is better. God's plan for your life is so much better because He's loving, He's wise, and He's in control. Put your trust in Him. Treasure Him. Put Him at the center of your life. Here's the next point that I have on my notes. It's not on your notes, sorry. But uh, how you evaluate an event determines how you will feel and behave in response to that event. Let me, you've heard me say this before. So how I evaluate my current situation will determine how I feel about it and how I will behave in response to it. If you don't like the way you're feeling about your circumstances, it's because of what you're telling yourself about your circumstances. It's your, it's your worldview. And if it's not a biblical worldview, then probably you're going to have some pretty negative emotions as a result of your circumstances. 
In fact, your response isn't going to be in any manner that would be consistent with someone who believes that God is loving, wise, and in control, that has this, this godly perspective. How you evaluate an event determines how you will feel and behave in response to that event. I, I gave you these two of my favorite verses as it relates to this whole idea of God's sovereignty and His loving, wise control of our lives. Romans 8.28. You guys probably know that. We sang that uh, song earlier today that talked about that. For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That in itself, if you just took that verse each and every day, regardless of what came your way, that would give you, yeah, that would give you the perspective that you need. For we know, for we know this that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. You'll notice that other verse there, 50-20. How many are familiar with uh, Genesis 50-20? It's about the life of who? Anybody know? Joseph. Yep, the life of Joseph. And, and this is towards the end of his life. He's gone from the, from the pit. His brother stripped his clothes off of him, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery. And so about, about 16 to 20 years later, he finds himself in the palace through God's providential care and orchestrating of the events, working in such a way where, where Joseph would be second in command so that he could bring the salvation of his family and even really the saving of all of Egypt from famine. And so here's Joseph, and he's looking into the eyes of his perpetrators, his brothers. His father has already died. And this is what Joseph says as he looks into the eyes of his perpetrators. You intended to harm me. So he's in touch with reality. These guys tried to hurt him. They tried to kill him. You intended to harm me. God intended it for good, for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you think Joseph had an understanding of God's loving, wise control of his life? Maybe not through the pain, but as he's looking back on it now, he certainly does. He begins to see that. I love what uh, C.S. Lewis has to say about this. I got a chuckle from this quote from him. He said, we're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. You guys agree with that, don't you? Isn't that interesting? One other illustration before we move on to the next point is that I can't help but go back to Job. Remember Job? There's a whole book in the Bible just on suffering and the sovereignty of God. Job has lost everything. He's lost his family. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his health. He lost everything except for his wife. And you'll kind of know why I had that kind of smirk on my face because I can't help but kind of get this idea that here he is. He's laying in bed. He's on his deathbed. And his wife comes up and says, and you can find this in the second chapter of Job. She comes up and says, Sweetie, honey, curse God and die. And it's like, Oh, thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, and he says something that's really quite interesting to her. He says, uh, you're sounding like a foolish woman. And he says, are we going to accept good from God and not bad? What was he saying? God's in control. God is loving, wise, and in control of our lives. So that's the first thing. A godly perspective. Here's the second one. A biblical priority. Christ has preached. This is pretty amazing. Let me go back. If you still have your Bibles open, go back to those verses, verses 15 through 18. Listen to what he says. And he wraps up those first few verses, verse 14. He says, hey, yeah, there are those that are preaching the gospel with greater boldness. And, then, and yet you see this kind of perspective that he's in touch with reality. He says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Yeah, I know that there are those out there they're preaching Christ for the wrong reason. By, by the way, he's not saying they're preaching heresy. Paul had no problem coming against heresy and speaking against heretics. He's not talking about that. He's talking about their motives. And he goes on, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They're doing it in such a way, their motives, they're preaching the gospel, but they're doing it in such a way to create more problems for Paul. But notice verse 18, this is great. He goes, what then? What then? He's basically he's saying, so what? So what? I like that. He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. 
So here's what's interesting about this. Paul has enemies not only outside of the church, but he has enemies inside of the church. He's not denying the fact that they're preaching the gospel. They're just doing it for the wrong reasons to create more problems within his life. Now let me ask you this question. When it comes to a biblical priority, when we are going through suffering, what is typically our priority? I'll ask you, I'll give you a multiple choice here and you can answer out loud which one you think it is. Typically, typically, is that when we're going through suffering, our biblical priority, is it comfort or character? What is it typically? Typically it's, it's comfort. Typically, it's comfort because we go and seek counseling. How can I get, find some comfort? I'm not comfortable anymore. And, and God's biblical priority is, is what? It's character. What is our biblical priority when it comes to suffering? Is it, is it happiness or holiness? Typically, it's, it's happiness. It's not holiness. And we know that God's, God's biblical priority is our holiness. And that through this, this character and holiness that our lives are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I love what Paul says there in verse, verse 18. He says, what then? What does it matter, the NIV says? I think that we need to learn that word. I think we need to learn how to say that word. What? So what? So what? There's just a lot of things that we, we get upset over. We get all uptight over, and we need to be able to just say, hey, so what? It doesn't really matter. And that's what he's saying here. In light of eternity, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so what? As long as the gospel is being preached, that's what's most important. We need to learn to say those two little words, so what? Why don't you say that with me? So what? With a lot of passion. So what? Ooh, good. So here we go. The traffic is backed up for miles and you're running late for your appointment. And you may lose your client creating more personal financial problems. Instead of getting stressed out, being rude, and making hand gestures at other drivers... You're going to say, with great energy, there you go, good. Here's the next one. You're having a bad hair day. That's every day with me. You're having a bad hair day. Boss is grouchy. Workload is overwhelming. And you didn't get the promotion you worked so hard for. Instead of coming home and taking it out on the ones you love the most, you're going to say, with great boldness, good. Your spouse comes to you with a concern about your behavior. You're going to look him or her square in the eyes and say, No, don't do that. No. No, that's a, that's a bad application right there. Don't do that. So what? That's bad. Some of, you wanted to, some of you wanted to say it right there. Whoa. There are some things it's really good for you to say, So what? Other things you need to take more seriously. Okay, would you guys agree with that? And what Paul is saying here. The things that he's worried about, he's not worried about, ah, their motives are bad, but they're preaching the gospel. They're preaching the gospel. Now, why would he say that? Why is that so important? As I reflected on that this last week, did you know what this book is all about? From cover to cover, it's about Jesus. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, that's basically what he's saying. Did you know what our lives are s- supposed to be all about, regardless of what we're going through? about proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I put this on your notes. We know that the Bible is, is, is really the whole message of the Bible is that Christ has preached. John five thirty nine through 40, Jesus made that very clear. Talking about all of the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament, is that Christ has preached. Luke twenty four twenty seven, the road to Emmaus, the guys that were talking to Jesus, that's what he talked about. He talked about, hey, this is all about me. It's all about me. And not only that, we also know that that our lives are, be, are to be this message of the Lord Jesus Christ through our holiness, our wholeness, and our character. Romans 8, 29, that's right after 28, isn't it? Oh, of course, yeah, they fall in line just like that. But 28, Romans 8, 28 is what? For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who, who love him and are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? That our lives would be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that our lives would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12, Paul even talks about even in the suffering that he was going through, the most important thing was that Christ was preached. Now, whether you realize it or not, whether you like this or not, your life, you're a witness. Witnessing is not optional. You, you knew that. It's inevitable. You're a witness regardless. You, you are a witness whether you, for Christ or against Christ, whether you know Christ or not, it doesn't matter. Your life is giving witness and testimony to something or someone. And I shared this last weekend at the end of the message about how God wants 
our lives to be a display case of his glory and his goodness. And I talked to you about my wife and I going into a restaurant. It was a restaurant or a bakery or something, and we noticed that they had this display case, but they had flies in the display case. Ooh, that's gross. And uh, so guess what we did? We ordered everything that was in the display case. No, we didn't do that. We, we walked out. My wife and I, we go in, uh, on Monday mornings, we go and drink coffee with my mom and dad. We hang out with them and have a good time. And uh, we go over at uh, Tully's. It's over here in the fries. And uh, we'll sometimes get a donut or two. And uh, I d- decided not to get a donut this particular time because I'm trying to be healthy. I'm preparing for Thanksgiving. So I can really eat more. <laughs> Actually, I don't know why. Because usually I get a donut or something unless I was trying to be healthy for that five seconds. And uh, so anyway, Nancy wanted me to go back and get her one of these long johns uh, with the caramel. What is it, caramel? It's uh, maple. Maple, yeah. Ooh, it's good. Good stuff. So I go back there, and the way that they put that in the display case, it's just like, ooh, I could eat them right out of the display case. I could just stand right there and just start eating them. Ugh. And they lay those donuts out, and they've got... Billions of donuts sitting there looking at me, saying, eat me, eat me, you know, come and give me. There's something about the display case when they display them and how they display them. It's just like, oh, but I, I went ahead and said no. And it was really hard. It was really hard to say that. But, it, but I was thinking about this whole idea that whether we're going through suffering, good times, bad times, ugly times, that God wants our lives to be lived in such a way that we would put on display the beauty and the splendor and the glory of our greatest treasure, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's possible. That's what's happening in Paul's life. That's what he's talking about there, that my life would proclaim Christ no matter what's going on. That's what he's saying. Hey, what, matter, what, what difference does it make? It doesn't matter. What difference does it make? As long as Christ is being proclaimed. As I thought more about that, I thought about why, why is that so important. I was reminded at the beginning of this service, I asked Darren Dirksen about a quote that he had used from a guy by the name of John Dixon. He was talking about, and here's how the quote goes. It says, live a life worth questioning, give answers worth hearing. That we want to live lives worth questioning. That people would look at our lives and they go, wow, how do they do that? How are they getting through that? And then... And then live lives worth questioning, but give answers worth hearing. That's actually 1 Peter 3.15, where it says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. What's the significance of Christ being preached through our lives? Well, we know that Jesus is God in human flesh. He is the ultimate revelation of God, the only way to God, the source of life from God. I love what Piper says in his book here, Seeing and savoring Jesus Christ, he puts it this way. He says, We were made to know and treasure the glory of God above all things. And when we trade that treasure for images, everything else is disordered. When we trade Christ and treasuring Him for something else, everything else is disordered in our lives. That's why we need to proclaim Christ not only to ourselves but to the world. He goes on, And he says, the sun of God's glory was made to shine at the center of our solar system, of our soul. And when it does, all the planets of our life are held in their proper orbit. But when the sun is displaced, everything flies apart. The healing of the soul begins by restoring the glory of God to its flaming, all-attracting place at the center. It's just the best place to live, and it's the best place place to convey Christ to this lost and dying world. What people need more than anything is Christ. They need Christ at the center of their lives. And so that's what he's saying here. He has a biblical, he has a godly perspective. God is loving, wise, and in control. He also has a biblical priority. Christ is being preached. And then here's the next one, a divine power from the Holy Spirit through prayer. A divine power through the Holy Spirit through prayer. Look at verses 19 through 20. Let me go back through those. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. That word's not what it it might seem like. It almost sounds like, well, he's going to be set free from prison. He's not talking about that. He's actually saying, this will come to my sanctification. That just as God can take the bad circumstances and work them for, for our good, 
that he's also working in the midst of the difficulties of our life, bringing about gold, changing us, developing our character, bringing about wholeness and healthiness and holiness. That's what he's saying. It'll be my, my deliverance. That's what God's doing in this. As it is my, notice his attitude, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. In other words, I'm not going to be disappointed. Nothing can get me down. God's in control of my life. I'm not going to be disappointed. Do I need to tell you this? People sitting around you, even your pastor, will disappoint you. But Jesus will never disappoint you. He'll never disappoint you. That's what he's saying. I'm not going to be disappointed. He's the one that died for me. He's the one that gave his life for me. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Wow. Okay. So he's talking about this divine power. And uh, I gave you some cross-references here. John 14, 15 through 18. This is where Jesus is about ready to exit this planet Earth. And he tells his disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And just as I was with you, the Holy Spirit will be with you. We also know, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's the fifth of the, of the five great commissions. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, where he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Dunamis, power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. The word there for witness is literally martyr. You will be able to go to your death for my name because of the power that you will have through the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives. Ephesians 1, 18 through 20, Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus and saying, I pray that you would have that resurrection power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead would dwell in you. And then in 2 Corinthians 1, 11, Paul is asking for the church in Corinth. He's, he's saying, hey, pray for me because he's, he, in fact, he talked about having this uh, almost dying because of the circumstances of his life. And he said, if it wasn't for the prayers of the saints, there was no way that I could get get through that. Basic physics basically uh, says this, when the outside pressure of a container is greater than the inside pressure, there will be a collapse, a collapse of the container. So when the outside pressure is greater than the inside pressure, you will have collapse. So it is in our life. Your life will collapse when the outside pressures are greater than the inside pressure. And I'm here to tell you this morning, based on God's holy word, that there is a divine power available to every follower of Jesus Christ. Resurrection power. His power is available to you this morning. And it comes to us through prayer. We're going to pray for you here in a little bit. We're going to have three stations here for you to come forward. We can anoint you with oil and pray for you. But there's an amazing power that's available to us. And that's what he's talking about through this. What, it, what does this do? What happens through this power in this prayer. <clears throat> I mean, um, as I reflected on that, I was thinking, what exactly happens? And, and, and I immediately kind of went to, to the story of Stephen in Acts 7, the first Christian martyr. Do you guys remember that story? I mean, he preaches a phenomenal message. They didn't like it, created a riot. They pick up stones and start chucking them at him. They're going to kill him. And what is going on? He had an amazing power. And they said that there was even this glow on his face. It was like, wow, what is going on? And it says that he was looking into the heavens and he could see Christ at the right hand of the Father. He had this, he was infused with power. Why? Because there was this greater illumination of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life. That he knew that Christ was greater and bigger than his circumstances at hand. Even though it may take him to his death, he knew that Jesus was greater. He was bigger. He was more powerful. See, that's what we need. That's really the power in our lives, is that we've got to begin to see that Christ is for us, not against us, that he loves us. And if we understand that, in contrast to our circumstances or the people or the things that we're dealing with, his power is greater. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. First John talks about that. So no matter what we face, his power is always greater. It's always greater. You can rely on His power and strength. And the Holy Spirit will illuminate the greatness and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then you look at your circumstances quite differently. I've got Jesus. He's for me. I've got the God of all creation who died for me. He loves me. I've got Him. What more do I need? And, and that's, that's the point that He's making here. It's, it's phenomenal. So let me ask you this. How do you face loss of job, loss of home, 
downturned economy without high anxiety. A divine power from the Holy Spirit through prayer. How do you keep people, things, and circumstances of life from jerking you around? A divine power from the Holy Spirit through prayer. How do you face death, divorce, terminal disease without hopelessness and despair? A divine power from the Holy Spirit through prayer. And I see that happening right here at Desert Bruce. Week in and week out. We've got a lot of people currently that are going just through just a lot of tragedy. Uh, just this last week, uh, Jim and Terry Hunt, they, they took another hit. They, they lost another family member. Uh, I went to the viewing of Alice Hilgreen. Uh, her dad passed away, Ray and Alice Hilgreen. And uh, here's what was amazing. I, I went to the viewing, and I was there in the room with them, and I saw the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ in those two. They're sitting right there this morning. I saw the joy, this buoyancy, this sense of hope in the midst of sorrow and loss. I saw the power of God in their lives. Tim and Kathy Hebe. I saw Kathy here. She's looking really good. Some people have no idea what she's, what she's gone through. Where are they? Oh, right there. Most people don't have no idea what, what that couple's been through and what she's been through. Did you know that she's lost two kids to cancer? Her daughter is currently battling cancer. She was battling cancer. She went in for major surgery. I go to the hospital to, to pray with them, and in that room, I felt the power and the presence of our holy God there with her, working in their lives. I saw the joy of the Lord in both of them. I went to hospice last night, uh, Mary Durier. She's going to be going to be with the Lord really soon here, probably in just a few days. And her brother, uh, her uh, sons, uh, David and Daniel, David and his wife Rhonda attend here. And uh, they were praying and, and loving on their mom. And I sensed the presence of God in that room. I saw the love, the joy, the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of loss, in the midst of tragedy, the joy of the Lord. It's amazing. It is totally amazing. Not something you can work up. It wasn't anything I brought in there. I mean, it was, it, was the, it was the power and the presence of God already there. We walked in and had an opportunity to experience what God is doing in their lives. And because of the many prayers that are being prayed right here. That's why we pray. We, we have a prayer chain and we have you sign those cards. That's for real. That happens. There's stuff that happens as a result of that. That's what he's talking about here. And so, Paul, here, a godly perspective, God is loving, wise, and in control. A biblical priority, Christ has preached divine power from the Holy Spirit through prayer. And then here, an eternal purpose. To live as Christ, to die, to die as gain. And then he goes on. He's, I mean, he's got this struggle going on. Did you guys notice this? I mean, I love this, this section of Scripture because he's going, well, I don't know whether to, if I want to go and be with the Lord, which is better by far. I mean, this is real, that would be wonderful, but, or, or to stay here because I'm like, I'm struggling between these two. I know I, know I need to be here because it'll be really beneficial for you, but, but then again, it would really be great to be with the Lord. It would be great to be with Him. And, and so he's going back and forth and he says, to live is Christ. To die is gain. I, I gave you a, a lot of cross-references there. You can study on your own, Matthew 16, 24 through 21, uh, Paul or not Paul, but uh, Matthew, the writer there, uh, talks about how uh, important it is to keep Christ at the center of your life. What good is it if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Keeping Christ at the center of your life. And, and the other verses talk about that. And then 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18, and then 5, 6 through 10, talk about the phenomenal gain that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, the gain that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, an eternal purpose. So let me ask you this. Just think about this for a minute. How would you complete this sentence? For me to live is... Fill in the blank. For me to live is... Think about this just for a minute. How would you fill in the blank? This is the thing that makes life for you. What makes life for you? This is your bottom line. What you live for. What gives your life meaning. If I have this, life has significance and security. For me to live is... See, if your life is collapsing, your problem isn't the circumstances of your life, but the purpose of your life. 
do you have an eternal purpose to live as Christ, to die as gain? See, if your life is collapsing because your career is collapsing, it's because your career is your life. If your life is collapsing because of your, your marriage is collapsing, it's because your marriage is your life. If your life is collapsing because your children are collapsing, it's because your children, your children are your life. So to answer that question for you, for me to live is, what is it other than Christ? Because whatever it is other than Christ, to that degree, when that thing is being threatened, blocked, or lost, is to the degree that you will experience suffering. That's what suffering is, is that when we, we give our heart to something, and, and even inordinately, and then that something is being threatened, blocked, or lost, then we will have suffering. Suffering is, is kind of somewhat, it's relative in, in some ways based on what you have given your heart to. I did one of the very first funerals that I did when I was a young pastor, really nervous, went over to this family's home to kind of do this little memory, a memorial service in their home. place was packed out. I'm kind of shaking a little bit as a young pastor. I uh, hope I say some things that will really comfort them. And I start kind of walking through this, and I just kind of noticed that there was kind of a restlessness and kind of a don't care attitude. And Finally, as I started working through this, I, I asked him, would anybody like to share anything about the one who has passed on? It was a grandfather. And, uh, and nobody wanted to say anything. And then finally someone said, well, to be quite frank with you, is that, uh, and I noticed that they weren't really sad about it. it wasn't, there wasn't really kind of a sadness or anything going on. And, and, and the guy said, quite frankly, we're just glad that the SOB is dead is what uh, they said. And it was really interesting, the atmosphere. And they were just waiting for me to get finished so they could just pop the top of their beer and... and guzzle some beer and have a little party. It was just another, uh, another reason for them to be able to party. They were glad they were, that he was gone. Isn't that interesting? And so obviously not much value in that relationship, not much value placed on grandpa. And so it wasn't much suffering for them, really. But see, what, whatever we attach our heart to, whatever we ultimately give our heart to in an ultimate kind of a way, and, that, and when that thing is, is lost, then th- there goes our life. And never should we ultimately and primarily give our life to anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one purpose in life that will stand up to anything. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. What does that mean? If you still have your Bibles open, look at verse 22. He goes on, talks about this. To live is Christ is fruitful labor. That means fruitful labor, labor for me if I hang out here. I'm going to live for Christ. Fruitful labor, verse 25, your progress and joy in the faith. I'm just going to help others. I'm just going to show Jesus. Verse 26, to glory in Christ. Let me read to you a quote from Tim Keller. I think that he helps us to understand this. I was really reflecting a lot on this idea, to live is Christ, to live is Christ. What does that mean? It means this. Listen to what Tim Keller says from his book, The Prodigal God. He says, uh, however salvation is is not only objective and legal, but also subjective and experiential. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, there's certainly something that's very objective and legal. We, we are completely righteous. We stand righteous before him. But he says, it, he, he says it actually goes beyond that. It's subjective and experiential. The Bible insists on using sensory language about salvation. It calls us to taste and see that the Lord is good, not only to agree and believe in, In his famous sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light, Jonathan Edwards said, and he quotes here, there is a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and having a new sense on the heart of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. The difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual sense of its sweetness. So he's making a distinction. Just because you can say, hey, God's holy, God's gracious, or God is loving, wise, and in control. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to experience it in the midst of suffering. That's what he's saying. He goes on, he says, Jesus' salvation is a feast. Jesus' salvation is a feast. To live is Christ. It's a feast. And therefore, when we believe in and rest in his work for us, through the Holy Spirit. He becomes real to our hearts. His love is like honey or like wine. Rather than only believing that He is loving, we can come to sense the reality, the beauty, the power of His love. His love can become more real to you than the love of anyone else. It can delight, galvanize, and console you 
And that will lift you up and free you from fear like nothing else. This makes all the difference. If you are filled with shame and guilt, you do not merely need to believe in the abstract concept of God's mercy. You must sense on the palate of the heart as it were the sweetness of His mercy. Then you will know you are accepted. If you are filled with worry and anxiety, you do not only need to believe that God is in control of history, you must see with eyes of the heart His dazzling majesty. Then you will know He has things in hand. So to live as Christ is more than just a statement we make. It's an experience of his loving, wise control of our lives and who he is and what he's accomplished for us and for our lives. And then he says, to die is gain. It's almost like saying, I mean, to live as Christ, okay, so if I'm going to be here, my life is about Jesus. I got him. What more do I need? Whatever happens, I've got him. That's enough. But to die, what's the worst possible scenario? Die. Nope, that's gain. Woo! All right, that's what he's saying. And everything in between, Christ, die, I get to be with him, gain. That's what he's saying. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to kill a guy like that. That's amazing. I mean, you can't, you can't do anything. It's gain. What would you say is the number one fear? What's the number one fear for people when, when asked? Actually, it's public speaking. Number one is public speaking. What I'm doing right now. It's public speaking. Number two is death. I can't ever figure that out. You know, people would rather die than to speak publicly. And, and uh, isn't that interesting? It doesn't make any sense. What's number three? Death while public speaking. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I made that third one up. But actually, that's, that's true. The people, people fear death. It's right up there. But public speaking is one of those things that, ah, they're about as fearful as, as death. I heard one comedian put it this way. I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> I was watching uh, channel surfing, and uh, we came across uh, Charles Bronson, Death Wish 2. And uh, it's, a, it's a vigilante. I kind of grew up watching Charles Bronson, Clint Eastwood, a lot of these tough guys. And uh, Charles Bronson, uh, it's a vigilante movie. He was an engineer, and someone killed, I guess, a relative, and so he's out on the hunt. Now he's going to hunt these guys down and kill them. First guy he comes to, he gets some trap down in this basement where he's, this guy's exchanging drugs with somebody else, and he comes down there, chases the other guys off, but he's got this guy cornered, and this is what he says. Do you know Jesus? Because you're going to meet him. Boom! So if Charles Bronson says you're going to meet Jesus when you die, guess what? You're going to meet Jesus, okay? Now, here's the deal with, it, meet, with meeting Jesus. You want to meet him having known him here in this life, okay? Does that make sense? That's why he says, he says that it's gain. You're going to meet him. You're going to stand before him. You're going to give account of your life. That's just the bottom line. That's all there is to it. But he's saying, you know what? I've lived my life for him. I've given my life to him, and I'm going to meet him. I'm going to meet him. Think about that. Just as certain as that person is sitting next to you, just look at that person real quick. Just look at them. See how they're there. They're really there. There's someone there. Just as they are real to you, there will be a time when you take your last breath on earth and first breath in heaven, and you will see the one who would rather die, who would rather die than to live in eternity without you. That's amazing. And you will come face to face with the living Lord and Savior. That's why he says to, it's gain. Whew, can't wait. Sense of longing. Longing. Here's the last one. A Christ-like poise. Behavior matches beliefs. Christ-like poise. Behavior matches beliefs. Did you notice what he said in verses 27 through 30? I mean, he kind of lines it out for him. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy. The word worthy means equal, of equal value, of equal status. You say you believe in Jesus? Then show it. Show it through your behavior. We're not saved by our behavior, but our salvation is seen through our behavior. Would you agree with that? We're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, but saving faith is never alone because if we really put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to make a difference in our life. That's what he's saying here, that there's going to be a difference made. And that's one of our biggest struggles is that as we begin to get that faith deep into our heart, this is our biggest problem in life is the disparity between our spirituality and our reality, between what we, we believe and how we behave. And uh, I love the Truth Project. How many have gone through the Truth Project in here? 
quite a number of people. Some of you, how many are going through it currently right now? There's a number of groups that are going through it right now. It's really a great program. But I love what uh, Dale Tackett says in there. He says, do you really believe what you believe is really real? Do you believe, do you really believe what you really believe is really real? Life is difficult. And the odd thing is that we are surprised when things go wrong and are tempted to think that we'll be okay when everything gets back to normal. But normal is that we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. And bad things happen. And yet in the midst of that, we can experience unbelievable joy. I gave you a number of verses here that you can look up, you can study on your own. And uh, it talks about the, the joy that we can have as we begin to, to... We have that narrowing of the gap between our beliefs and our behavior. Let me ask you this question. In many surveys, what do you think was the number one factor that most people said produced the greatest levels of spiritual maturity and intimacy with Christ? Suffering. 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 And so how do we get this deep into our heart? How can we begin to live this out? Joy and suffering happens when I have a godly perspective. God is loving, wise, and in control. A biblical priority. God is, uh, Christ is preached a divine power from the Holy Spirit through prayer, an eternal purpose to live as Christ, to die as gain, and and a Christ-like poise. Behavior matches my beliefs. When I reflect on the cross, it always goes back to the cross. When I reflect on the cross, I can say, if for you, Jesus, to me, to live as me, and that's why he died. He died for you. If for you, Jesus, to live as me, then for me to live is you. And if for me to live is Christ, then nothing can take away from the joy, even suffering, and that especially includes death. Nothing, absolutely nothing. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm going to show you this video from a guy by the name of Horatio Spafford. It's just about a two to three minute video. At the end of that video, let me explain what we're going to do here. I'm going to play this song that he wrote, It Is Well With My Soul. Most people don't even know the context of, of that song. Here's the context. We're going to play that. You can sit in here and reflectively think about that, that song. Allow the truth of that song, the truth of what we spoke today, get deep into your heart. Have an opportunity right now to experience the power and the grace of God. At the end of the video, we'll also give you three places, three stations. There'll be one right back here, two up here for prayer. If you'd like to come forward for prayer, you can do that. Or you can sit there quietly. Or if you feel like you need to leave, just please exit quietly. We're just going to have a time just so that we can pray with one another. We can reflect on God's gracious goodness to us. And so that we can renew that joy even in the midst of our suffering. Watch this. Horatio Spafford was a man familiar with death and tragedy. The Spaffords were grieving over the death of their first son to scarlet fever when the great Chicago fire decimated the city. Horatio, a successful lawyer and real estate investor, lost everything. After the fire, Horatio and his wife Anna were attempting to pick up the pieces when a good friend, the great evangelist preacher D.L. Moody encouraged him to take a much-needed vacation. Moody was doing a preaching stint in England and invited the Spafford family to join him there. Horatio had some business to attend to, so he decided to send his wife and daughters ahead, planning to meet up with them shortly. En route, the Spafford ship collided with an iron sailing vessel, and all four daughters drowned. Anna was one of only a handful of survivors. Horatio immediately departed for England to rejoin his devastated wife. When the ship's captain told him that they were passing over the scene of the accident, he retired to his cabin. Overcome with sorrow, he wrote, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. These words were eventually set to music and became the great hymn of the same name, It Is Well With My Soul. However, the story did not stop there. A few years later, Horatio and Anna had two more children, a son and a daughter. But this son also contracted scarlet fever and died at just four years old. Horatio's life was marked 
by persistent tragedy and death. In the course of his life, he lost business and real estate and saw the death of six of his eight children. However, he did not surrender himself to anger, sorrow, and despair. Though he wrestled with these things, to be sure, instead, he defiantly declared his hope and trust in his sovereign Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Echoing the words of Paul, he learned to be content in any situation, even death and loss. Ultimately, the Spaffords turned their grief into mercy ministry, founding a small community of believers in Jerusalem, working to aid the poor and needy in the early days of World War I. Horatio's great song challenges us to fight for joy in the midst of tragedy and death, to defiantly declare that in Jesus, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul.